So I've been asked to look at this, this issue of what we think about the Bible. It's quite a, a broad topic to be given, of course. Uh, I hope it will be useful to you. I hope it will be uh, a little bit challenging in, in places, a bit stretching. Uh, but I hope it will be uh, useful to your, your thinking. And uh, I want to uh, look quite broadly at this topic. We'll look at some sort of um, difficult problem passages and um, look, uh, you know, we'll, we'll look at the issue of um, debate about biblical inerrancy. But I want to put that in a broader context. Uh, as well about the role of the Bible um, in the Christian's uh, life, in the life of spiritual formation and discipleship and so on as well. So, that sound cool? Grand. Thank you very much. So let's uh, start with looking at the, the idea of authority and in this uh, arena uh, the terms inerrancy and infallibility are the ones that crop up the most. Uh, I know that the photocopier broke down today, but you have had emailed around to you uh, the handout that I've done that has some of the key quotes off this uh, and a lot of recommended uh, materials and so on. Um, and of course, I'm recording this for my podcast channel as well. So presuming that this works, I'll put it on the podcast channel eventually. So don't worry too much about getting all of the, the notes or everything. You'll be able to get it later for free. Uh, so William Dembski uh, helpfully draws our attention to the fact that the word inerrancy comes from the Latin noun error, in error, so it's without error. Uh, uh, error means error or a mistake. Whereas the word infallibility, this is from a different Latin word, the fallor, uh, meaning to deceive or to lead astray. So... Uh, Theologian uh, Michael Bird helpfully notes that the Bible itself does not strictly teach its own inerrancy. It's a bit like talking about um, the Trinity, say, you know. Um, critics of Christianity will sometimes point out, oh, the Bible never mentions Trinity. Why doesn't it just come out and say it? You know, uh, the Trinity is a, is a theological doctrine that Christians have come up with to summarise and to, uh, to cope with the data that's in the Bible. And it's the same with the ideas of uh, inerrancy. This is a, a theological doctrine that Christians over the years have come up with, tried to define in various different ways, in order to uh, encompass and make sense of um, what the Bible says about itself, and the Christian uh, church's experience of the Bible uh, in its life. So the Bible itself doesn't strictly teach this, but it does declare that God's revelation is always true and trustworthy, and it roots that, it anchors that in the faithfulness of God himself. So God is by nature truthful and trustworthy, and so when he reveals himself uh, if that really is a revelation from God, then it reflects his nature and is truthful and, and trustworthy. And that's certainly taught within the Bible. Uh, of course, you don't want to go uh, into the realms of a circular argument. 
And they say, why, why do you believe that the Bible is inerrant? Well, because the Bible says that it's truthful and trustworthy. And well, why do you trust that? Well, because the Bible is truthful and trustworthy. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the Bible tells me that it's truthful. And tr this is just a sort of circular uh, argument. doesn't show the position's wrong. Uh, but it uh, isn't any good at convincing someone who doesn't always doesn't already agree with you. Uh, as an argument, you need to go a different route, and we'll, we'll look at that later. The notion of authority, I think, is a broader and, and really useful notion to think of here. Um, the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, in part, defines authority like this, that the power or right to give orders to make decisions, to enforce obedience. The power to influence others, especially because of one's commanding manner or one's recognised knowledge about something. So if a particular text or set of texts uh, contains or is a revelation from God, God is authoritative in the sense that he has the right to command things because he's perfectly good, uh, he created us and uh, he knows everything, <laughs> uh, being omniscient and so on. So he has this uh, authority in terms of knowledge about what he's talking about. And therefore, if the, the revelation reflects the revealer, that authority uh, is then conferred upon what he's saying. Because he knows what he's talking about and he's got the right to command it, etc., etc., I just put some uh, illustrative pictures of people with different kinds of authority in our uh, culture there, from the policeman to the scientist to um, the recently sainted Mother Teresa. Uh, moral influence, you might, you might say. Um, do feel free to um, pop up a hand as, I, as, I'm, as I'm going through. I'm not going to... Let's not just do this as a lecture where I do all the speaking and then we do all the Q&A at the end, feel free to sort of say, hang on a minute, what does that mean? Or can you explain that a bit more? Or what about this? Or whatever. <coughs> uh, N.T. Wright, who I'll be quoting a few times, a uh, well-respected British theologian, says the phrase uh, authority of scripture can only, of course, at best be a shorthand for the authority of God uh, in Jesus mediated through scripture. He asks, why would we even want to mention biblical authority? Surely the authority is, is God, is Jesus. Uh, why not say, we live under Jesus' authority, and leave it at that? Wouldn't that be the biblical thing to do, indeed? Well, yes, but, <laughs> yes, but, as centuries of history de demonstrate, the Bible is the God-given means through which we know who Jesus is <laughs> and what his character is that gives that moral influence and what his commands are uh, and so on. So it is our way of accessing uh, Jesus, uh, historically speaking. You might, of course, argue there is a, a religious experiential route to accessing uh, Jesus as well. Wright goes on to mention that the Bible does what God wants it to do. The Bible does what God wants it to do when, through the power of the Spirit, it enables people to believe in Jesus, to follow him, 
and to share in the work of the kingdom. And we'll come back to this at the end. So that the, the Bible is not just a, a set of um, propositions like uh, some philosophy books that one might mention. If you ever read some of the early Wittgenstein's work, it is like um, one sentence, 1.1 statement, 1.2 statement, two. It's this, this, this list of here is what I'm telling you. You know, um, It is not like that you know, on the main. Uh, it is doing a job, and it's doing a job in a certain context uh, of calling people into discipleship and in relationship with God himself through the Spirit. Uh, so it does this job in this context um, to, to, to help us to share in the work of the kingdom by loving him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right, so the Bible is the primary means that the Spirit uses to bring about that heart and life renewal. So the authority of Scripture is therefore the dynamic, not static, here's a list of things that you need to know, uh, means by which God transforms humans into Jesus followers and therefore kingdom workers. Um, Wright's language is always incredibly rich. (laughs) Uh, It's very sort of, you could write a whole commentary on like Pauline kind of, He's very Pauline, isn't he? Right. I, I recommend his, his works to you. Uh, so I think that sets us up in a, in a good broader uh, context here. But back, back to the, the narrow issues of inerrancy in particular. Here's a few different definitions of inerrancy. One from the, the Catholic Church. Ooh, sorry. Oh, yes, I've got these um, little Vitti's digestive nibbles and things, which I thought you could pass around and nibble on to keep the, the blood sugar levels up and the, the brain engaged as we, we go through some of this uh, philosophical theology. So the, the, the Second Vatican Council uh, puts it like this. It says, The books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error, without error, in, uh, inerrant, teach the truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confined confided uh, to the sacred scriptures. So they're, they're kind of putting a caveat there that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. It tells us what we need to know reliably and without error. But it tells us what we need to know uh, for the sake of our salvation. Now, some people will, as we see, try to uh, will restrict the notion of infallibility to um, this issue of what we need to know for salvation and doctrine and works or something like this. And we'll say, so biblical inerrancy doesn't really apply to the Bible when it's talking about, I don't know, the history of some battle somewhere or astrology, astronomy. Uh, not astrology. So <laughs> it does talk about that as well. Uh, astronomy, you know. Um, the... Uh, the, the Bible teaches us how to get to heaven, not how the heavens go. Uh, famous, uh, I think it was, uh, was that Galileo? Uh, so maybe that uh, kind of thinking is in the background there. So it might be a fairly narrow understanding of inerrancy, and they can be broader ones. Uh, it's a little hard to, to interpret that sentence just uh, abstracted from its context. Uh, 
Douglas K. Blount. You can tell he's a philosopher because he says uh, this. Uh, Scripture is inerrant equals definition for any proposition P, if the Bible asserts that P, then P. <laughs> so only a philosopher would describe it this way. It's like, what he means is, if the Bible claims that something is true, it's true. That's what he's, that's what he's, that's what he's saying. <laughs> Paul Feinberg, uh, summarising, particularly off the back of, of the famous Chicago uh, inerrancy uh, statement from the 1970s uh, from America, uh, evangelical American kind of uh, definition of inerrancy, summarises it this way. Feinberg says, inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, uh, and I'm going to add, and or as originally received by the church, uh, and properly interpreted, lots of qualifications here, will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. So, for example, this definition is allowing for the fact that um, there might be mistakes in the copies of the Bible that we use to make our translation from. Certainly might be mistakes in our translation of those texts. Um, You need to look to textual criticism to try to get you as close as possible to the original autograph that was originally written. Uh, I've added my extra caveat in there because for some biblical books or passages... Uh, one might argue, well argue that the, what the original author wrote was then added to later by other people. Um, certainly by some of the books uh, in the Old Testament where the bloke who is traditionally meant to have written the thing dies before the end of the book and then their funeral is described. I think he probably didn't describe his own funeral. <laughs> or in John's Gospel, uh, there's a bit that some people interpret as... as uh, uh, they talk at the end of John's Gospel about the, 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 the one who saw this about Christ being speared on the cross and so on. It testifies that this is really what happened. And we know that what he says is true. Uh, so I, hang on a minute. This is John's Gospel up until now. And then suddenly we have this sort of editorial comment from the, from the we. Now, is that, is that John using the royal we? Or is that, you know, is that John's disciples editing up his book that he was writing just before they, they published it abroad after his death? Um, whole um, theological debate there. Um, so these things uh, can kind of happen. Or what about the, the famously the story of um, the woman caught in adultery in John's Gospel? It doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts that we have of it. Uh, and if you look it up in, in your Bible, you'll see there, there'll be a little footnote saying this story does not appear in the, the earliest manuscripts. Nonetheless, it is so traditionally included in the Bible, and a lot of theologians will argue that it probably is a reliable story. It was just later, it was later on edited in from a different tradition, but early, but early enough that we can probably rely on it as, as being historically accurate. Um, so it may not have been in the original autograph, but maybe John's disciples, when they were editing the thing, went, oh, yeah, we must put that story in. Why did John not put that? I don't know. No, let's put it in. Yeah. And they, they, that Christian community accepted it and published it, and then the whole Christian community accepted it. 
maybe, you know, um, etc. So, um, well, certainly at a, at a, at a fairly early uh, stage. Craig Blomberg, American theologian. Um, I've mentioned this issue in passing. He says, despite repeated efforts to limit the, the truthfulness of the Bible to areas of faith and practice, or doctrine and ethics, scripture's affirmations about all the topics treated are too uh, intertwined to separate beliefs and morals from other matters, including especially history and science. Um, you know, uh, very often, for example, the ethical teaching uh, is rooted in the teaching about creation. Uh, Jesus talking about uh, the nature of marriage or whatever, we'll go back to the creation passages in Genesis um, to, to, to root those. Um, so it's not as if you, you know, your understanding of what is a person, uh, what are people meant to be created by God, is kind of important to your ethical thinking about how people should behave. Uh, what something is partially determines how it's sensible to treat it. Uh, so you can't really separate how you treat it from what you think it is and what it's meant to be and how it came about and, and so on. Uh, having talked about the, the, the autographic issue and so on, Dallas um, Willard, uh, lovely uh, philosopher and uh, spiritual writer from America, uh, died fairly recently, says, I, I believe the originals were inerrant, but neither I nor any living person has seen the originals. And frankly, I'm rather glad we don't have them. Imagine what it would be like for some particular people to be in possession of them, the original document, and what shenanigans would then follow. But he does note, of course, that the scriptures that we, we have are the best attested record of the ancient world available that we, that we have um, in, in terms of the sort of materials available for doing textual criticism to work out what the originals probably said the Bible is by far and away in a whole different category than the whole rest of ancient literature um, such that if you were going to say I am sceptical about us being able to reconstruct with any degree of plausibility what the original probably said, you would have to say that about the whole rest of ancient history and close down the history departments at all the universities, the classical history departments. Um, it's been estimated that the text that we can reconstruct is somewhere in the 98 percentile accuracy range. And you'll notice in your Bibles that where there are um, other competing translations or you know, another textual tradition has a slight variation, there'll be a footnote noting the variation and very often it doesn't actually make any theological difference uh, to things anyway. So... Um, it would, I think, be uh, possible to be 
infallible, lacking in deliberate deception, without being inerrant. You could still have errors, mistakes, even if you're not there deliberately. It would be possible to be inerrant, lacking in errors, without being infallible. I could deliberately mislead you uh, by uh, lying by omission. And one might believe that scripture is infallible, or we might believe it is inerrant, or we might believe it is infallible and inerrant, or neither. There's a whole lot of options, which is why this gets quite complicated, because you've got a lot of different options, each which, as you can see, could have slightly different interpretations that people put on them. So, you know, when someone says, ask, you know, do you believe that the Bible is inerrant, you know? I immediately want to ask, what do you mean by, <laughs> you know, do you, do you mean what Feinberg means, or that, or the Catholic Church, or do you restrict it to ethics and doctrine, or do you mean across the board, or, you know. So you, you end up with quite a lot of nuance and options to kind of work through, unfortunately. Certainly agree with Blount uh, when he says one could treat scripture as authoritative, reliable, without believing it to be inerrant. Accepting biblical inerrancy is not a prerequisite for reasonably believing what scripture says on the grounds that scripture says it. Maybe you just think it's a very reliable historical report. Many Christians, he says, don't believe that scripture is inerrant, and of course this makes them no less Christian than those who believe it to be inerrant. Um, it is not a, uh, are you or are you not an, a Christian kind of defining issue, in other words. It may, or be, may not be more or less wise as a Christian to believe this, but that's a separate thing. Uh, any questions or, or ruminations uh, at this juncture for me? Press on. Okay. So I'd like to look at a couple of quotes uh, from folks who I think, by those definitions, would, would not be believing that the Bible is inerrant, but whose view I uh, respect and whose view I think contains a great deal of wisdom, but I think could contain more, <laughs> as it were. So, C.S. Lewis. Um, he... Uh, viewed uh, the Bible uh, like this. this is a quote from his uh, book Reflections on the Psalms he said the total result of inspiration he believed the Bible was inspired the total result of inspiration we'll look at inspiration yeah, momentarily is not the word of God in the sense that every passage in itself gives impeccable science or history he said Rather, he thought it carries the word of God, and we 
under grace, with attention to tradition and interpreters wiser than ourselves, and with the use of such intelligence and learning as we may have, with all sorts of supports, we receive that word from it. Not by using it as an encyclopedia. Again, he's saying it's not this sort of proposition one, proposition two kind of a text. Not by using it as an encyclopedia, but by steeping ourselves in its tone and temper, learning its overall message. So he would distinguish, uh, uh, as others would, between the kind of the minutiae of what the text claims historically or scientifically or whatever, and say those things might be wrong, but God has inspired this set of texts such that when we read them together and we steep ourselves in its in its overall message, in the main thing that it's it's saying, it does the job that God wants it to do in our lives, which is to make us more like Jesus, basically. Uh, so it is. In, he thought it's scripture is inspired, and its general message, as we understand it with the help of church tradition, etc., etc., is inerrant. You might say, but you know, when it says this battle happened, then so and so died at you know whatever age. Um, as we'll look at later, you know, the mustard seed is the smallest seed, and you think, hang on, no, it's not. Uh, so it can be wrong. And I think there's a, you know, okay, that's, that's, that is a Christian view of the Bible. C.S. Lewis is a guy I respect. Uh, I think I like this thing about not treating the Bible just like a sort of encyclopedia that you can go and look things up in, and there's a lot of wisdom there, but for me, it doesn't go far enough. Or, more modern day proponent of this kind of view. The, uh, this is a bit of a mouthful. The Reverend Dr. Sir John Polkinghorn, FRS, a fellow of the Royal Society. Uh, John Polkinghorn was a quantum physicist at Cambridge University who contrib- contributed uh, to some of the foundations of quantum theory. He then... Uh, he was uh, master of Queen's College for, for a while as well, I think. He then, retra- he then retired and retrained as an Anglican priest <laughs> and uh, wrote a whole slew of books uh, on the relationship between science and theology, which were very well received. Uh, so his, uh, his reverend, his doctor in, in uh, quantum physics, and his knighted, so his uh, and his fellow of the Royal Society, which is, you know, okay. So, he says, Scripture is inspired by God, but written by human beings. The Bible is not the ultimate textbook in which one can look up ready-made answers to all the big questions. You have to grapple with it more than that. I think this is wise. Then he gives this analogy. He says, it's more like a laboratory notebook in which are recorded critical historical experiences through which aspects of the divine will and nature have been accessibly revealed. I believe that the nature of divine revelation is not the mysterious transmission of infallible propositions which are to be accepted without question. Here the rhetoric, I think, gets away from him a bit. It's like... What's wrong with the nature of the transmission being a bit mysterious? A lot of, you know, 
Some things are mysterious. Quantum mechanics certainly is. You know. um, <laughs> uh, certainly it's not all propositionals, we'll see, but that, I think the Bible does claim that certain things are true. And why think that they are, those things are to be accepted without question? Why not say the Bible gives you a whole lot of things which, even after you've questioned them and thought hard, long and hard about, you think you, you should believe? You know, he, he's, he's kind of caricaturing um, uh, uh, slightly here. But anyway, using this uh, lab notebook analogy, he says it's the, the, the record uh, to persons and events through which the divine will and nature have been most transparently known. Um, and I think N.T. Wright's comment uh, applies here. He says the Bible offers itself and has normally been treated in the church as, as part of God's revelation and not simply a witness or echo to it. So Polkenhorn seems to, with this analogy of the, the lab notebook, be saying God reveals himself in history through particular events and people. And those people then write about those events in a generally historically reliable manner. And we have those texts, and in reading them, we can access those events, and so access the revelation. But the Bible is not the revelation. It's the things the Bible is talking about that happened in history. That is the revelation. I think I want to say, well, both are the revelation. Both the events and the Bible <laughs> are, are the revelation. So for me, uh, Polkadorn doesn't go far enough. This is um, Bill Craig, William Lane Craig, talking about, have you heard of um, the American uh, Bible scholar Bart Ehrman? Uh, who uh, was a Christian who lost his faith um, at, uh, at uni as a, in the New Testament area. He's written quite a few highly sceptical popular books and some less sceptical academic books. It's interesting. Um, but Ehrman came from a very um, traditional conservative evangelical kind of Christian background. And when in studying theology, he found some problem passages in scripture, whilst at university, and he was trying to write a, an essay one day, trying to reconcile some, some issue, and his professor just made a note of, or oh, maybe the author just made a mistake. <laughs> and that sort of the house of cards started crumbling uh, for Ehrman. And Bill Craig, who's debated uh, Ehrman, uh, says this about, about the topic. He says, Bart Ehrman had, it seems to me, a, a flawed theological system of beliefs as a Christian, when he was a Christian. seems that at the centre of his web of theological beliefs was the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And everything else depended on that. It's like, because I believe the Bible's inerrant, therefore I believe everything else about Christianity, because I know those things because they're told to me by an inerrant book. But such a structure is deeply flawed, even if you believe in inerrancy, argues Craig. He says, at the, at the centre of our web of beliefs ought to be some core beliefs like 
the belief that God exists, uh, with the deity and the resurrection of Christ somewhere pretty near the centre. I mean, if, if someone were somehow to be able to convince you that Jesus was not the Son of God, you know, he, he's still mouldering in the grave, like here are the bones kind of thing, would that mean that you should stop believing that there's a God? Well, not necessarily. I mean, so maybe the belief that there is a God is, is more central in that sense. Uh, somewhere near the centre, uh, deity and resurrection of Christ. The doctrine of uh, inspiration of the scripture will be somewhere a little further out, and then inerrancy even further towards the, the periphery as a colliery of inspiration. That is, because you believe in inspiration, therefore you believe in inerrancy. So if inerrancy goes... like that, the web will not collapse because belief in God and Christ and his resurrection and inspiration, we've seen with Lewis and Bolkenhorn, will still remain. You'll just have given up your, uh, at least your particular version of the doctrine of inerrancy. Is there an article we can find very long Yeah, this is on, let's see. So this is uh, just got the web address here from Craig's Reasonable Faith website. Yeah, if you went to Craig's website and did the search engine on Bart Ehrman um, inerrancy, something like that, that would probably pull it up. Uh, this, like, this was a news article on Craig's website. So Andrew Wilson, in his little book, uh, Deluded by Dawkins, I'll reply to um, the God delusion, has a point, I think, when he, he says that Dawkins has the relationship between scripture and mainstream Christian belief completely upside down. It's like Ehrman. Uh, the assumption underlying almost all that Dawkins says about the Bible is that the Christian's structure of beliefs goes something as follows. Um, one, scripture is truthful, because it's the word of God. And two... Scripture says that Jesus rose from the dead and is God incarnate. Three, therefore, Jesus rose from the dead and is God incarnate. Now, I mean, that's a valid argument. Uh, you certainly can go that way, but there's certainly not the only way to go, as it were. Uh, rather, uh, Wilson argues that the evangelical structure of belief, as articulated by a whole bunch of writers from Paul to the present, goes more like this. One, sufficient warrant for believing that Jesus is divine would confer on the face of it warrant for the truth claims that he issues. Two, the historical evidence within and without scripture shows that Jesus both claimed to be divine and did things that backed up that claim. Three, therefore we've got on the face of it warrant for believing what Jesus says about scripture. And oh look what Jesus says about the Old Testament revelation and look about what he promises to the disciples about the Holy Spirit helping them remembering things and leading them into all truth and that they are his appointed uh, representatives you know, the 12 apostles the 12 tribes of Israel he's reformulating Israel around himself and they are his kind of ambassadors and it's a new revelation and a new covenant and they're writing uh, documents which would you know, some have argued naturally be assumed to be the documents of the New Covenant, 
and even within the, in the pages of the New Testament letters, we can see the disciples themselves um, treating the writings of other disciples as scripture. Um, so they were think they seemed to have the idea that what they were writing was scripture, um, and the church has accepted that through its uh, history and experience and so on. Sorry, can you just do those two Yes, sure. So, you could start off with the belief that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and then say, that, that text tells me that Jesus is God and rose from the dead. And that's why I believe that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead. Okay? Or you could say, um, this text, just, just treating it historically gives me enough reason to believe that Jesus is who Christians think he was to take really seriously what he says about scriptures old and to come Uh, because he claimed to be God and there's evidence to say that he did things that showed that he was like that he rose from the dead so you believe that he rose from the dead on, on on the grounds of the historical evidence not just because a particular book says it, mm-hmm. but, but that particular book gives you access to good historical evidence that it happened. And so if Jesus was who Christians think he was, then you take really seriously when he says things like, you know, that this scripture cannot be broken, or you know, the way in which he argues with people by, by saying it is written in the Old Testament, and, and so on. Um, and that is why you then end up with a view of scripture. You, you say, I really ought to have the kind of view of scripture that Jesus had because, hey, he was God, so he's got the authority to know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And I believe that because of the historical evidence and maybe because of my religious experience and historical evidence inside and outside of the Bible. I don't believe it just because that statement is made in a particular text that I have decided to accept as an errand. Um, let's see. Yeah. Great. He's doing the rounds, they still. Great, good. Mm. Here's Dawkins again, um, uh, smirting off in an uninformed manner about New Testament studies, as he's wont to do. Says things like the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is zero. He never engages with the evidence. <laughs> but, but that's because you think there isn't any you know. Um, accounts of Jesus' resurrection are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk wonderful rhetorical flourish um, but uh, he seems to be criticising religious faith for, for believing things without evidence so the trouble with you Christians is you just believe stuff but you don't believe it on the basis of evidence um, he says, you know, religious faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence. So his critique seems to be the problem is the lack of evidence, particularly the lack of evidence for miracle claims like the resurrection. But on the other hand, he will assert things such as, from the God religion, the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles without embarrassment. <laughs> And he will point to, say, particularly, as lots of new atheists do, to David Hume's much 
debunked bad argument against uh, believing in miracles. Uh, so what he's really saying, on the other hand, is uh, I won't believe evidence for miracles. Um, in another of his, in a, in a children's book that he that he wrote about introducing children to science, he, he wrote about is it ever possible if we find some event uh, and we can't work out how it happened and we can't work out how it could be a fraud or it could be a trick or it's just like but the event happened. Could it ever be possible for us to, to sensibly conclude that it must have been a miracle? And he says no. So on the one hand, as many new atheists do this. The critic seems to the critique seems to be the problem with you Christians is you don't have the evidence. Show me the evidence for the miracles, etc. But on the other hand, they say I'm never going to pay attention to evidence for miracles because I know that miracles can't happen, so there can't be any evidence. So I'm not going to engage with it. <laughs> uh, they seem to be you know, giving with one hand but taking uh, with the other. Lewis noted this when he said the canon. If, myster- if miraculous unhistorical is one that these liberal critics uh, bring to their studies of the text, not one that they've learned from it. Um, the, the old uh, distinction between the, the, the Jesus of history and the, the Christ of faith um, is one imposed upon New Testament studies by the naturalistic argument against miracles, by the assumption that naturalism is true or that miracles can't happen or, or can't be known so on and that demands this distinction between the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history as if they can't be the same thing it's, it's not a distinction that comes from looking at the historical evidence and then saying you know, there's what the historical evidence tells us about Jesus and then there's what Christians believe by some sort of leap of unevidenced faith uh, rather, the, the, the leap of unevidenced faith is the faith of the people who, who approach the documents with the faith assumption that miracles can't happen, with faith in David Hume's argument, which they heard of once in grad school and rather liked, <laughs> but have never read any of the philosophical work done, it, done on it in the last 150 years, which has generally been thought to debunk it. So there. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Richard Dawkins. Um, <laughs> I'm writing a book at the moment. Um, uh, I've, I've written some stuff in the past responding to the new atheists at the sort of philosophical belief in God kind of level, but I'm writing something at the moment on um, everything that they say about New Testament, Jesus of history kind of stuff. Um, uh, I provisionally titled it, and here's the pun, Getting at Jesus, there getting at Jesus, but this is also about getting at him, sorry getting at Jesus Um, and here's the subtitle Um, a comprehensive uh, uh, responsible critique to neo-atheist nonsense on the Jesus of history and it really is, it really is nonsense okay, any uh, pause there, any questions
if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then our faith would be futile, rather than if inerrancy isn't true. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's not that you, you believe it historically and therefore don't believe in inerrancy. It's just that, as, as Craig was saying, you don't put inerrancy at the, at the centre of the theological web, but rather at, at, at the periphery um, of the theological web. It still then features in your life and discipleship, but, as Craig was saying, it's were someone to give you a really good reason for not believing in inerrancy, should that mean giving up on Christianity? And Craig's saying, the answer to that is, is no. <laughs> um, it's like, as Paul says, it, it's worth someone to give you a really good argument that Jesus is not who you think he is. Then you should give up Christianity. Exactly, as he says in, in 1 Corinthians. Yeah. Would it matter if the body was found, if Paul is saying it would? Yeah, if Paul is saying, yes, it would. <laughs> the alternative is it wouldn't matter at all because the body is irrelevant. Yeah, well, because we've got an inerrant text that says he wrote so, so that must be a mistake. Yeah. Um, right, that no, you'd be in the sort of the reverse of the Richard Dawkins position of saying oh, I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the evidence mm-hmm. yeah so does that mean that the Bible if we believe the Bible is not inerrant that there are mistakes mm-hmm. in the Bible how, how do we I'm sure you're talking about it, but how do we then come to the Bible and study it? Mm. And it has some mistakes in it. Like how do we know? Yeah. So, as I said, I, I think it is inerrant, <laughs> but to, to, this is a conditional question. Suppose we don't think it's inerrant, and some Christians don't. How do those Christians approach engaging with the text, doing Bible study? Well, you know, why would you bother if you think, well, they there could be mistakes here. Um, so think back to uh, particularly what C.S. Lewis was saying about, about this sort of distinction between um, the reliability, and you might even say the inerrancy, of the, the general message when you read the Bible in the whole in the light of Christian tradition versus asking, is this or that particular detail, particularly details that aren't part of the particularly important the message like the message um, I struggle with that thinking because it's not black and white and it's, it's yeah. and it's so subjective then yeah. but then I, I, I don't think I don't think any position on this is actually black and white mm-hmm. I, say, I think all the positions that you could take you, you still have to shoulder the burden of thinking, how should I correctly interpret this text? I, I may have the belief, even if I believe in inerrancy, I believe whatever the Bible is actually claiming will be true. But what is it actually claiming? And then you will note that Christians of equally, equally sincere faith with equally good doctorates from equally good doctoral schools will completely disagree on the interpretation of the passage <laughs> um, you can't get round that so for all Christians there are, there are, it, it is clear that there are some things that are clearer than others 
for all Christians, always it's been the case that it's much easier to get a bunch of Christians to agree on the contents of the Apostles' Creed than it is to get them to agree on the 39 Articles of the Church of England, of course. Because if they all agreed on the 39 Articles of the Church of England, well, everyone would be, would be Anglican, wouldn't they? You know, um, or whether you're a Calvinist or not, or whether you're a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist or a theistic evolutionist or whatever. But all Christians agree that God created. <laughs> so thinking back to sort of Craig's analogy of this theological web, so there are some beliefs that, that, that are central that are, that are key and there are others that are more peripheral and less key and important. Um, and I guess particularly if you didn't believe in in, in, in errancy in this sort of very general sense you would nonetheless be able to approach scripture thinking its general temper and overall storyline is authoritative and reliable and this is a text as, as Polkinghorne thinks that's giving me access to knowledge about Christ who reveals God more more fully and transparently than anyone else in history has ever has, and I want to pattern my life after him, uh, and so on. Okay, so this is uh, part two. Start looking at inspiration. Richard Swinburne, famous British Christian philosopher, knows the church has always claimed that the Bible was inspired by God, although written down by human authors. And he thinks it that therefore follows, and the church has traditionally held that it follows, that at any rate, when it has a clear message, maybe sometimes the message is not clear to us, when it has a clear message, it is true, by the criteria of its own genre, and I was talking about this in the, in the break with someone, by the criteria of its own genre. Um, Augustine famously wrote uh, a little text called On the Literal Interpretation of Genesis. Um, that meant interpreting Genesis according to the kind of literature that it is. Um, so if uh, a text is, uh, say, poetic or mythological, or legendary, or whatever, you interpret the text according to the, the genre expectations, the kind of rules of the game of that kind of literature, and then you have, according to Augustine, a literal interpretation of it. So literal interpretation is not the same as a literalistic, a woodenly literalistic interpretation of a text. This is sort of avoiding fundamentalism 101, this distinction, I think. So uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, which we will return to later, but at the beginning here, it talks about the way in which um, all scripture is God-breathed. There's in the Greek theo, uh, from theos, divinity of God in Greek, panoustos. And the same sort of Greek root as thinking of English words like pneumatic, the uh, air-powered 
pneumatic drill with the silent P, Panustos. Um, you look at Genesis 2.7 where God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, the pneuma, the breath, the wind. Um, it's the same uh, root term there. Uh, you might say that in both humanity and scripture, uh, creation transcends itself by the metaphorical breath of God. Uh, Keith Ward, another uh, British Christian philosopher, theologian, uh, makes this suggestion, worth thinking about at least. So I think the natural way to take the text from 2 Timothy is to say that God has breathed over inspired the minds of the many writers of scripture with all their varying viewpoints and differences of reproach the scriptures build up an authentic and trustworthy testimony who's breathed over their, the minds of the human writers so that when you put what they write together and take what they've written take it together so they give a context to each other because an interpretation context is, is always key they build up an authentic and trustworthy testimony to the divine plan to reconcile the world to the divine love. So maybe he again is thinking a little bit along the sort of C.S. Lewis, at least the general message uh, is not only inspired but inerrant kind of line. Elsewhere he, he notes that unlike Muslim belief about the Quran which they think the, sort of the Quran just exists eternally in heaven and it was dictated uh, to Muhammad. The Bible does not, on the whole, some particular passages do, but does not on the whole claim to be dictated by God, word for word. Um, the writers of scripture are not just the, the secretary taking down notes from the CEO. Very few Christians have taken a dictation view of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's far more typical to think of the Spirit as somehow overseeing, inspiring, overbreathing the writings of many different individuals to ensure that taken together, and I like this taken together, they convey insight into spiritual truth. But this is without putting words one by one into their minds. Um, so whether they like, they're like hearing what God wants them to write in, in, in a vision, as it were, and then just writing it down, or God is just sort of taking over the, the strings of their mind so that uh, I'll pull that neuron so they'll write that word. and that They're not just a sort of dictation machine. It says the personalities and beliefs of the writers were not simply overridden by the Spirit but rather used to build up a set of documents which would as a whole give true insight into the nature and purposes of God. Now, I might want to push that a little further towards a sort of general idea of in, uh, uh, inerrancy as well as inspiration, but I think there's some useful things to think about there. Yeah. I'm just, a lot of these feel quite general. I'm just intrigued as to how you would apply some of this. Um, well, you might be coming to that. Yeah, I, I will come to some specific examples. Yeah. Yeah, but because that could mean a number of things, because the whole message of Scripture is obviously something that you could probably read multiple whole messages of Scripture into Scripture if you were approaching it, it would be more like. Yes, and, yeah. And so, how, 
is, the, is there a more kind of grounded mm. approach to application? Uh, we might all come to yeah. that. Yeah. And, and maybe the answer to that question is no. Because maybe this, this is, is back to the, yeah, there are a number of, maybe it is saying a number of different things. And different people latch upon different aspects of it. Maybe there's some of that that there's more Christian agreement on than others. Um, but I guess but I'm pushing, what I'm trying to push back on is that there's probably some in the, in the top, in kind of ivory towers mm. you get to the point where really the, the kind of postmodern, very little, very mm. little treatment you end up with being able to read whatever you want into the Bible. Yeah, what yeah. One's definition of truth would be that it's... Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, that's an interesting point. I don't think even this needs to lead. I don't no, think it would, would lead to... to I'm, I'm sure the quote in context doesn't say that, but I think... Yeah, it, yeah. It yeah. I, I certainly think it doesn't need to lead to a sort of postmodern. you can just, the text means whatever it means to you yeah. kind of thing. He is at the very least saying there is a general message that God has communicated that is there, that he is rooting the meaning in the divine intention of, of what he is meaning to reveal by those texts taken as a whole, at least. So, so there's an objectivity um, that at least he's postulating uh, there to the, to the meaning that you, that you read. Um, I guess the, the question of how sort of broad or narrow your view of uh, inerrancy is merely determines how, to what level of detail you need to bother paying attention to, in, in a sense. Yeah. So let's try some analogies, and uh, all analogies fall down somewhere, but maybe you'll find some of these analogies a little useful. First of all, on the whole thing of how can you even have a text that is, that is the word of God and the word of Paul or Peter or John or James? Or, you know, it's got two authors. Um, and it's not exactly the situation of a book that's written by two authors who were like, you know, well, I'll write this chapter and you write that chapter. Or we'll write alternative chapters and then we'll swap and we'll correct each other's things. And I've worked on books that are like, you know, boy, is it laborious when you're swapping chapters and going back. Um, but this sort of inspiration thing means somehow that it's both the word of God and the word of particular men and um, women as well. Um, so greeting cards I think give us at least a partial an, an analogy of this. suppose I go to the greetings card shop on Valentine's Day and I spend a lot of time very carefully picking just the right card because it has uh, just uh, you know, a, a wonderful uh, schmaltzy lovey-dovey poem in it um, that I choose and I, I give it to you and I say I you know, I, I took a long time choosing this card, and this, this poem really, I think, expresses how I feel about you. Yeah, and I give you the card, and you read the poem. You know. Well, in situations like that, one would probably thank the giver of the card, and so it's, it's great to know that you feel that way about me. Um, it would be quite odd if you were to receive the Valentine's card, read the poem and so on, and then you think, I really must track down who, who works for the card company and who wrote that poem and, and go and thank them for... <laughs> uh, you know. Um, and yet, the person who gave you the card did not write the poem that they had given you. 
So the card is an instance, the greetings card is an instance where it is both a message written by one person, but also it's a message given to you by a different other person. So it's both one person's work and another person's meaning and intention at one and the same time. Um, here's a, a bunch of fairly bluish photographs. Supposing an artist uh, commissions a whole uh, bunch of photographers, says, uh, I want you to take these cameras and go out around uh, Kennedy Spaceport and take a whole bunch of photos. And by the way, guys, if you could kind of focus on things that have quite a lot of blue in them, that would be really useful. <laughs> okay, so, and these photographers, they go out and they take loads of photographs and they, they hand in their photographs to the editor-in-chief, who then arranges, puts together that material so that uh, when you look at the overall result, thinking back to Keith Ward, Keith Ward was saying, you get that. Which is um, Van Gogh's uh, Starry Night, of course. Each of those square pixels is one of these photographs. So this painting here is, in one sense, produced by all of the individual photographers taking their photographs under the, um, the guidance, the inspiration, in a sense, of the, the chief artist. And yet, what the chief artist has done with that, those individual bits of work in, in the way that they've um, not only commissioned them, but put them together, uh, communicates something over and above what any of the individual photographers had in mind when they were doing it. Maybe that's a little bit like at least an aspect of biblical inspiration. That you have all of these different writers in their situations over a big historical period, all contribute, contributing, little did they know, to the overall picture of which they only saw uh, a part. Um, they had an inside line on what was going on, but not the whole thing until you get the whole thing. Douglas Blount again. Um, he makes an argument that I'm not sure I find convincing. I don't know whether you do. He says, We have good reason to think that God allowed human authors to express themselves freely when writing scripture. Because when one reads various books of the Bible, one can't help but be impressed by the diversity of the styles within them. But how shall we explain this diversity if not by appealing to the freedom of the human authors? So saying, yes, it's, the, it's inspired, it's the word by God, but clearly, you know, Paul writes in a very different way than Peter or James or, um, you know, whoever wrote the book of Job has a very different style than whoever wrote, you know, um, Psalm 104 or whatever. There's different personalities seem to come through these scriptures, personalities of different human writers. They're not... I don't think we're just acting as divine dictaphones 
if they were, there would just be one sort of authorial voice coming through the text, and, and it's not like that. But I'm not sure that this argument really works, um, because it seems to lead to saying, well, therefore, those writers must have just produced what they did kind of completely freely. And that's why we have all of these differences in tone and um, communication style and so on. What room does that then leave for what sort of level of detail of inspiration beyond a general sort of, hey, it would be nice if you wrote a letter to that church, Paul. Kind of, surely inspiration has to be sort of more than that. So maybe there's a sort of halfway house between these things. And if you look at a verse like 2 Peter 1.21, now this is talking about prophecy. So I don't know to what extent you can apply this to all inspiration. But prophecy is certainly an instance of that one, might think. And 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word translated as carried along here, if we pronounce this, pheromonoi, which can be translated to carry, bear, bring, lead, to conduct someone from one place to another. So, okay, prophecy might not be divine dictation um, but it's not exactly hey just do your own thing <laughs> obviously um, didn't have its origin in human will they were carried along by the Holy Spirit such that they spoke from God says the personalities and beliefs of the writers were not simply overridden by the Spirit, well, maybe they were on, a, on occasion. Why not? Um, but rather used by the Spirit. You, maybe this, maybe the Holy Spirit creates Scripture by, as it were, expressing the Word of God through His chosen human filters, um, so that the the personality of the different filters flavours the word of God that is expressed through them. Sorry for this analogy, but here's a coffee maker. One of those old-fashioned coffee makers. You put the water in the bottom, and then you have the filter, um, and uh, the coffee and the boiling water expresses through the the coffee, and then it, it uh, recondenses up in the top there. So maybe the Holy Spirit expresses the word through and uses the human personalities and culture of the different writers. But maybe the Holy Spirit does it in such a way that he ensures the infallibility and or inerrancy of what those writers produce... Maybe on occasion he has to step in to stop them writing something that they would otherwise write that would have been wrong. But if they are expressing the general gist of what he's saying in perfectly acceptable language, even though maybe someone else would write it in a certainly in a different style, or would have chosen a different word, or 
maybe he doesn't dictate the level of, I think you should use this word instead of that synonym. So it's not dictation. It is the word of God expressed by the personality of the writer. But that doesn't necessarily mean, as, as Blount might be taken as saying, um, that God just kind of leaves it all up to the personality of the writer. Um, maybe there's a, a more sort of um, integral engagement between the Holy Spirit and the personality of the writer and what is produced, and then the meaning of that, which is produced anyway, is affected by a context that God knows that he's producing over history, such as the way of maybe, you know, the person who wrote Psalm 22... Did they necessarily know when they wrote Psalm 22 that they were writing about the crucifixion of Jesus? Possibly not. But I think it becomes darn clear by the time that you've got the Gospels written that that's what he was doing. Well, once you have the Gospels, in retrospect, it becomes, oh, obviously that's what that's talking about. you know. But it probably had a more sort of immediate meaning to the writer at the time, and a lot of prophecy works that, that way. It has a sort of more sort of immediate context meaning and a longer term meaning as well. It has a more literal meaning and a more metaphorical, sort of typological meaning sometimes, and so on. Um, so I think it's a sort of false dilemma to say, with we were looking at Polkinghorne sort of saying earlier, the Bible's inspired by God. But it's written by humans who are fallible and make mistakes and therefore you can't really trust everything that they, you know, because, and then he would say, well, are you denying that it's written by fallible human beings? Well, no, but I don't think that, you know, that's the choice, as it were. Maybe there's a sort of mid-ground here that allows for taking into account the, the data of all these different voices and personalities and so on coming through, whilst retaining a quite general, broad idea of inerrancy coming out of inspiration and infallibility coming, infallibility coming out of inspiration. Um, so uh, this is the first time I've used this uh, coffee pot illustration of uh, inspiration. Um, See if it runs. <laughs> and of course, fi- finally and famously, the, the incarnation uh, analogy. Um, thinking, well, how does the Bible manage to be the word of God and the word of man? Well, it, if you believe Jesus is who Christians think you are, you, you believe that, a, that, a, that, a, that a, a person managed to be both divine and human at one and the same time. And if a person can be fully human and fully divine at the same time, um, why not, in an analogous sense, a book? Um, is there any in principle reason for uh, swallowing one but not the other, as it were? Um, so if you've got that fairly near the centre of your theological beliefs, at least by analogy, you think, I'm not quite sure how, how, how... But I might not be quite sure how that... Ha- <laughs> Anyway, you know, that's a whole debate of philosophical theology in and of itself. Uh, But that is a sort of traditional analogy that the church has given to say, look, you know, we believe Jesus was divine and human and this revelation is somehow both divine and human. That is, 
the only way of making sense of our experience of its authority in our lives um, when you experience it. Um, Peter Manning in Vegan, uh, Christian philosopher from the States, um, talking about philosophical theology, uh, says that he thinks um, that at the very least, these sort of theological uh, definitions and doctrines of things like the Incarnation or the Trinity or inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture are at least as good as scientific theories are at giving us access to the truth. Famously, in, in science, you get development of scientific theory. Um, and strictly speaking, you can say things like, you know, Newton thought X, Y, and Z, but then Einstein came along and showed that he was, strictly speaking, wrong. But actually, he was on the right track, and what he says is perfectly re- reasonable and reliable guide will allow you to put men on the moon with a great deal of accuracy or land satellites on comets as they did recently using Newtonian mechanics. At this level of reality description, it's just that when you get to the very, very small or the very, very fast, then you have to start start talking in Einsteinian terms. It kind of subsumes Newton whilst extending him. And you get this sort of subsuming and extending and tightening up of definitions and things over time. But a scientific theory takes into account lots of data, tries to arrange it coherently, uh, and at least does that well enough to let you do a lot of stuff accurately with it. And Vegan says these kind of theological doctrines of Trinity, etc., etc., are at least as good as that. Um, maybe, maybe they're better than that at a philosophical level. Um, but... Uh, you know, we know that we haven't got everything sorted out in the sciences. Um, philosophers of science will talk about the pessimistic inference that basically every theory of science that we've ever had has been shown to be wrong. <laughs> because someone comes along and says, ah, oh, but it doesn't apply here. You need to extend the, <laughs> the theory. Um, but another way of putting that is a lot of our scientific theories have been along the right track and have just needed to be developed a little bit and tweaked. <laughs> you know? So, good grief, weren't the ancient Greeks, pre-Socratic philosophers, amazing to come up with atomic theory? We don't conceive of atoms in the way that the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers did. We don't conceive of them in the way that 19th century physicists did. Um, we conceived them in quantum mechanical terms. We've only just recently discovered the Higgs boson and proved that, verified that that theory of matching particles and so on was right. Um, but that shows we were along the right sort of general lines. <laughs> and if our, theolo- if our theological theories of this kind of thing are at least that good, then we're doing pretty good. <laughs> uh, Tuesdays. I was just wondering when you're talking about the genres, <coughs> genre stuff. Mm. We seem to be applying a 21st century um, idea of what the genre of biography is, yeah, and testing it solely as 
have they presented all the facts yeah. which we can then interpret ourselves to discern who Jesus is? Mm. But I have heard other people say that actually for them, mm. the purpose of the biography was not necessarily to present the facts in mm. a totally correct way, but to communicate yes. who this person is. Yes. And, so and to give a moral exactly. exemplar, etc. Yeah. So is there a problem then with us to say it's an error, it, it has errors, it is flawed, therefore throw, throw the whole thing out? Because we're applying a completely different genre expectation exactly. to it. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that yeah. might very well be the case, and I will I will highlight an instance of this as we go forward in the next section. Yeah. Do you think that's um, yeah, not in a big way. But like we were talking at the break about John, John. So in John's Gospel, it says after Jesus died, it says um, in John 19 um, that since it was the day of preparation, just after Jesus had been crucified, I don't know my customs, but I'm pretty sure that's the same day as the Passover. So they should have been having the Passover meal, which they have in the Synoptic Gospels. So a lot of people say that okay, in John's Gospel, he dies the day before he does the Synoptics. So one of them has to be wrong, and one of them has to have an error. And then you say, well, why has John gone and put it on the Passover? Is it just that he got the wrong source? No, it could be that he's saying, this is the Passover lamb. We don't have to have this meal anymore. Our sins have been forever forgiven. So Oregon uses this phrase, um, spiritual truth is preserved in um, material falsehood. I think falsehood's a bit strong. But you see how John has... The, the important yeah. thing for John is when did Jesus die at what hour, but actually, who is Jesus? He is our atonement. He is the new Passover lamb, and that's why he does that. But to then say, well, John is completely wrong, yeah. he, is, he has errors, would be, yeah. I think, the wrong way to approach it. It would be right, like uh, reading um, a use of irony in a text um, uh, and saying, uh, reading it literalistically and saying, well, that's wrong when you haven't realised that it's, it's irony. And in irony, uh, something that's I said ironically means the opposite of what it actually literally says. So do the other Gospels... Not, do they not all imply us the day before the Passover? I thought they all imply that. They, because they have... Well, they have the Passover meal mm. in the synoptics, don't they? That's the last, that's the last supper, is the Passover meal. Although there's a debate amongst theologians about whether, yeah, whether that is the Passover meal or not. But this, this is a, a, a general example... Of the thing, I mean, there's a difference as well between when did Jesus do the clearing out of the temple? Was it towards the beginning of his ministry or at the end of his ministry? Yeah, for example. Yeah, John has it. Yeah, the end. has at the beginning. So you end up with some theologians saying, well, because we believe in inerrancy, and it would be a mistake uh, to have a contradiction between those two things. Therefore, well, he must have done it twice. And the synoptics report it one, one of them, and John reports the other one of them. And I was like, well, that's, as I say, that's possible, but it, it's not necessarily the most plausible reading of the text as a text. And you think, maybe they've put this event in, a, in different places to make theological points, and are saying, and that, a lot of that comes down to what are the proper genre expectations of the text within its cultural context? Mm-hmm. What is the cultural expectation 
of what would count as being misleading or not within a first century biography, for example. Uh, Michael Lycona, who's recently, uh, he did a lot of good stuff on the resurrection before, but his, his recent research project has been looking at first century history and biography, particularly first century history and biography written by where you have the same author, like a Roman author, who might say, describe the same event in two different biographies of two different people's lives and might describe that same event in apparently rather different terms. But it's the same author describing them, the same event. Um, and Lycone is trying to work out from these comparisons with Greco-Roman literature what the sort of the, the rules written and unwritten of the, of the genre expectations of the day were. Um, but I think we'll, we'll get into this as I... Just wanted to raise... Yeah. Luke 23, um, before they take the last, the last supper, um, the disciples say to Jesus, "Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover?" So then well, they say that in Luke as well, and then but then it goes. It was a preparation day for something else. It might have just been the supper. That it doesn't have to. Be. So you're, you're saying is preparation day definitely the Passover? Right? Yeah. Yeah, which I, I don't know that stuff. Yeah, so it's all about. I was looking, just recommending one book. There's um, Colin um, Humphreys has written uh, recently a book about the dating of the crucifixion, which probably goes well into this, but it's on my to read list, unfortunately, so I haven't read it yet. So I can't tell you. Um, but yeah, let's, um, let's road test with this crash test dummy here some definitions of inerrancy through some specific biblical examples um, and this whole genre expectation uh, thing, particularly. So I think here's a, a provocative starting place for getting a good definition of biblical inerrancy is to realise that, of course, Scripture does contain false and misleading statements. It definitely does, because Scripture records false statements and or lies said by people, such as Satan or Rabbishka or Herod. So um, in Isaiah 36, 13 to 20... The uh, Babylonian, is it, commander, uh, Rebeshka, stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. So Rebeshka is saying, don't trust in God, you guys. We are definitely going to conquer you. That's, that's wrong. They don't conquer them. God does deliver them. So that is a false statement in the Bible. Or uh, Matthew 2, 7-8. Herod summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and pay him homage. That is a lie. 
he wants to kill him. Okay? So the Bible reliably reports unreliable things. Because it reliably reports people lying or trying to deceive other people or saying things that don't turn out to be true. So, again, literary understanding versus literalistic understanding, context, of course, is key to reading stuff properly. Um, as As the famous saying goes, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Um... Psalm 14, verse 1, says there is no God. There you go, the Bible tells you, you know. But of course, that is a ridiculous, literalistic reading of Scripture because Psalm 14, verse 1 says, Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. They are corrupt and their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. So... Reading something out of context can make it mean completely the opposite of what the text is actually saying. Um, this is something false that is reliably reported that people think to themselves, you know. Um, and this goes for whole, um, not only texts, you might say for books, and indeed for testaments. They only really understand the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. Um, so, for example, theologians like uh, Charles Hodge, 19th century theologian, talked about the progressive character of divine revelation uh, being recognised in relation to all of the great doctrines of the Bible. It says, what is at first only obscurely intimated is gradually unfolded in subsequent parts of the sacred volume until the truth is revealed in its fullness and again, it's a little bit like that analogy of the scientific theories developing. It's not exactly that what you get revealed early on is wrong, but it is developed and built upon and more fully understood, more fully orbed by your later understanding of things. So, the, the Trinity. One might argue that there are hints of the Trinitarian nature of God even in the opening verses of the book of Genesis where the unity of God is described in the Old Testament using a word uh, that is a compound unity. It's the same word when it said that the people were as one. and They agreed. They were as one. It's that word for one that is, that is used of God, you know, one God rather than that they did have a word that meant one. But that word's not used. But there's no, there's no commentary upon that early on. It's like, is this just a weird linguistic convention, or what? But in the light of the New Testament, Revelation, etc., one might very well say, oh, that's because God's Trinitarian. Many people have read it that way. Or um, Jesus, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, saying, because of your hardness of heart, Moses in the Old Testament permitted you to divorce your wives. And there are laws and rules given within the law in the Old Testament for how you should go about handling divorce. But Jesus is saying, but this is not God's ideal that people do this. Rather, it, it was the law was coping with an unideal situation. It was making the best of a bad deal. It was saying... Given that you're going to do this, 
here are the rules that you should follow to do it in order to mitigate the evils of this as much as possible. But don't get into the frame of mind of thinking, divorce is fine, because there are rules about how to do it in the Old Testament. And then he would point back to the Genesis account. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. This is not the ideal situation. That the Old Testament both points to an ideal, but then also points to a, oh well, let's cope with what we have in the law. I mentioned this briefly earlier. Um, This is from Matthew, and it's also in Mark. Um, The parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, or big, big plant, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, botanically speaking, the statement uh, a mustard seed is smaller than all other seeds is false. There are smaller seeds. Does this show that the Bible is not the inerrant word of God? Um, I would say no. That's you know just pushing it too literalistically. Jesus was speaking proverbially. Um, he was speaking colloquially, within ordinary language, not a botany textbook. Um, and indeed, within the context of first century agriculture in Israel, the black mustard seed was the smallest seed sown. Um, but this is just, it became proverbial, and you can see uh, it used proverbially in other Jewish writings. It was, it was kind of as if, as if I were to make a point by quoting the proverb, a stitch in time saves nine. And someone were to say, hang on a minute, that's not true, universally speaking. I mean, sometimes a stitch in time saves more than nine stitches, or sometimes less. So you've made a mistake, Pete Williams, you are not inerrant. You know, I think I would say, you know, you're missing the point here. (laughs) Um, You're pushing my language into the realm as if, as, as if I were a Wittgensteinian philosophy text from the early 20th century, uh, rather than if I am a uh, Jewish rabbi speaking in a first century context using proverbial wisdom. <laughs> Describing Solomon's temple, this is one for the mathematicians, uh, and its fixtures in 1 Kings 7.23, tells of there is a basin in the temple and it says it was ten cubits a cubit from fingertip to elbow uh, usually measured by whoever was the king at the time or whatever uh, ten cubits from one brim to the other and it was round all about so it's ten cubits across and it's round and a line of thirty cubits did compass it round about so it's thirty cubits round now the mathematicians among you are going oh dear Oh dear. Because the circumference C of a circle is related to its diameter D by the ratio of pi, according to the equation C equals pi times dia- um, P times diameter. And pi has been calculated to many decimal places, uh, to many, but not all of them, 
Is there such a thing as all of them even? This is an interesting question. But for most applications, the approximation, and I highlight approximation here, 3.14 is sufficient. So even we approximate it to pi to 3.14. Um, so inserting the conference and diameter in scripture into the equation would give p, uh, the p-value of 3 instead of 3.14. Um, so is scripture wrong about you know, this is a mistake? As Craig Bloomberg says, to this day we use round numbers. Even when we talk about pi, we have to use a round number because no one has calculated all the numbers of pi if there is even such a thing. It's just that ancient cultures uh, rounded up numbers and did so regularly, and they did it in a bit more of a lackadaisical kind of a way than we do because, well, they didn't have the notion of scientific and mathematical exactness that we're used to. Um, so, okay, it's talking in a sort of, well, roundabout way, but I think we'd be pushing it to sort of see that as a mistake in scripture that will ruin your doctrine of, of inerrancy. You just say, hey, ancient cultures didn't use numbers in that kind of a way. Indeed, a lot of the time, in the Old Testament particularly, numbers are used in a sort of numerological symbolic way rather than a mathematical kind of a way uh, a couple of verses about astronomy uh, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises the sun rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other so is this a biblical endorsement of a uh, geocentric astronomical model versus a heliocentric model, which we know to be true. Is this a mistake? Um, Blomberg, uh, a biblical author, or God, since he's also the author, uh, declaring that the sun rose, need not be affirming a geocentric universe any more than we are when we continue to use the same phrase. The writer was simply using a conventional way of speaking that corresponds to what we observe Big long word, phenomenologically. I just think of the Muppets song, Phenomenon. Do, 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 phenomenologically. How it seems to you. Um, the sun rays. Okay, it doesn't literally. I, I think even to ask the, the question of the psalmist, you know, are you endorsing a geocentric or a heliocentric would, would not even have been a question that was really on their mind, <laughs> I think. Um, they're not writing an astronomy textbook. Um, they're just saying, hey, the sun rose, you know. And even, even if they were endorsing a geocentric model in the back of their minds, do we need to read the text in that way since it's also the word of God? Maybe he didn't mean it literalistically. <laughs> uh, tremble, uh, Chronicles 1630, tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. But the Earth revolves. It orbits the Sun. It varies its axial tilt. Doesn't the Earth move quite a lot? The Earth cannot be moved, says Scripture. This was a big uh, issue in the science religion back in the day. It's not much of an issue these days. Evolution seems to be the issue these days, not this issue. Um, but there are several Old Testament passages that speak of the Earth being established such that it cannot be moved or shaken. Um, 1 Samuel 2.8, Psalm 93, and so on. 
By the way, here's, a, of course, a, a photo of the Earth from orbit. Um, this is entirely anachronistic <laughs> to be thinking in these terms when you're back in biblical times. Um, again, it's, I don't think it's even a question that would have been in the back of their minds. Um, what did they mean by saying the Earth? I mean, the word translated as Earth could mean everything from some ground to the land to a whole lot of land um, including perhaps a whole lot of land including any land that there might be that we haven't discovered yet <laughs> which we might then translate as the earth but to think in terms of oh well they mean planet earth orbiting the sun like, that's not in their mind back in BC whatever it is when the psalmist is, is writing this but it is interesting to you know that the, the biblical idea of being shaken often occurs in texts describing the impotence of false gods. There's an implicit contrast in these texts between the impotence of false gods and the potent rule of God symbolised by the stability of his figurative throne, the earth, the land, land. Psalm 93 portrays the world as a throne that's symbolic of God's reigning. A throne that God has firmly set up and established such that his throne, i.e. God's reign, won't be overthrown. It, i.e. God's throne, God's reign, won't, the word in the Hebrew is mot, won't Give way, be removed, totter, shake, or you could translate it, be moved. Mean a whole kind of range of stuff. So the metaphorical stability or, or permanency of the world about us, if you like, is used as a metaphor for the security of God's position as king. And that is figuratively represented by the picture of, of Earth as God's throne. You know, you might have the occasional earthquake. You know, Jerusalem's in an earthquake zone, and the, the Earth might shake a bit, but it's not removed or overthrown. Or you know, the Earth is here; <laughs> it's secure. God's founded it. That's like His reign over us. That's what's being said. <laughs> And to read that as, oh, good grief, now we've discovered heliocentrism, we realise that the Bible is not the inerrant word of God. <laughs> it's like to miss what's being said. Psalm 104.5 says, God has set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Mot. Um, but if you were to ask the psalmist, where on the map do I need to go to so that I can um, look at one of those foundations? What, what are the foundations dug into? <laughs> he would say, uh, you've confused me with an architect, mate. I'm a poet. <laughs> what I mean is, <laughs> you know, uh, John Lennox, uh, interesting take from uh, John Lennox. He says, we know now that the earth does not rest on literal foundations. We can therefore see that foundations are used in a metaphorical sense here. 
God the Creator has built certain very real stabilities into the planetary system. Earth's stability, therefore, is very real. It is, if you wish, a literal or true stability, even though it does not now make sense to understand the word stability, mot, literalistically as referring to motionlessness. But then I never thought that that's what the original psalmist meant by it anyway, really. It's not talking about, does the earth move? It's talking about, will God's reign ever be overthrown? Will his throne ever be toppled? Will the, the earth ever be removed and overthrown by false gods? Whatever. No. You um, see from Psalm 104, it's very poetic. And indeed, this, this verse that we've had here, so that it should never be moved, in the NSB translation, for example, gives, gives this translation. He established the earth upon its foundations so it will not totter forever and ever. <laughs> so sometimes we get misled into a rabbit trail in a sort of science-religion dialogue by what modern word the translator happens to have picked to translate the Hebrew into. It's like, because they use the word not moved, we start thinking about, oh, geocentrism and, and things, rather than if they read it in the NSAB and it said not totter. It's like, what, what, no one thinks that the earth totters uh, in that kind of sense, removed. Um, uh, oh, axial tilt. So what's that? But yeah, it's not like imperiled uh, structure of life, universe, and everything. That's the point. So I, I use uh, this analogy in an article I wrote recently for um, uh, Zonderbang about bringing out a dictionary of science and Christianity, and I wrote some articles for it. And I, I wrote one on on the, the modern understanding of myth. And I use this analogy. Um, this is obviously the, the London Underground map. Um, is this map accurate or not? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It depends what you mean. It's like a very good philosophical answer. It depends. Um, well, yes and no, depending on what you mean by it. I think this is an abstract map. Okay. As an abstract London Underground map, it, it reliably guides people through London's underground. A, a myth, in a modern sense, a myth is often used to just mean a false story, but we don't use it uh, that way uh, academically these days. A myth provides a, it's a narrative that helps people to understand themselves within the framework of a given worldview. It reliably helps situate them in terms of their sort of philosophical and spiritual understanding of reality. Um, and you can see that you know, Psalm 104 is doing that. It's, it's trying to be a London underground map, as it were. It's not trying to be a Google map. It's doing a different task. And to try and read it with one set of expectations, is just to ask for, for trouble. So, of course, as we've seen, there are ways of reading or understanding these verses that we've looked at. 
so that you make them false things that are a problem, depending on how you understand them and how you understand inerrancy. But there are ways of understanding them such that they're not false. And, of course, ideally, the, the truthful, the reliable interpretation of the text is also going to be the most intrinsically plausible interpretation of the text, according to all the argument back and forth of literary theory and so on, hermeneutics. Although one might justify some degree of flexibility, as Blount says, uh, to the extent that one has reason to regard the Bible as inerrant, to that extent one has re- reason to read it as such. So if you, you're, you, you do have reason, as we looked earlier, not, not just an assumption, but reason to believe the Bible is inerrant, and then you read a text and you think, hang on a minute, that seems to be saying something wrong. Then you have some justification for thinking, I've probably misunderstood it. Let me go and see if there is a at least you know plausible interpretation of this what is being said here that is true as far as I can tell, and you actually have some some reason for doing that it 's not just a sort of ad hoc face saving exercise because you do have reason to think that there when the Bible is claiming something it's claiming something true, so if you're reading it as claiming something false you've got reason for thinking, I have misunderstood it, rather than thinking, oh, it's wrong, I will give up my doctrine of inerrancy. Um, There might come a point at which you had to give that up, just like there might come a point where, you know, you you say, okay, yeah, show me the bones of Jesus and all. You know, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then let's, you know, let's all eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we diet. But... Uh, two quotes from Alvin Plantinga with his wonderful uh, Dutch beard here, the Dutch-American Christian philosopher, one of the most uh, influential Christian philosophers of the last half century. Plantinga says uh, two useful quotes here. Uh, the Bible is not a book full of declarative sentences with proper analysis and logical development and all the accoutrements, uh, accoutrements academics have come to know and love and demand. Um, sometimes we, or at least theologians or people like me with a background in philosophy, would love the Bible to be like that because that would make it so much easier and simpler to read and understand if it were written by Wittgenstein. You know? (laughs) (laughs) But then, exactly, most of you have got that look on your face where you say, I'm glad the Bible's not like that. (laughs) You see? (laughs) So actually, you're, you're glad that it's written by a whole bunch of shepherds and kings and poets and, and so on. Whereas I find it a bit frustrating, because that means, oh, good grief, I've got to try and interpret what it's meaning. You know, Why isn't it like reading the Encyclopedia Britannica or the OED? That would be so much simpler and easier. But it would be a lot less engaging, and perhaps it would not impact us as whole people in the right kind of a way. It would not be as useful. I think this indicates that inerrancy and, and the authority of Scripture and so on must be understood so as to allow for this sort of ordinary language rather than technical 21st century scientific or philosophical language, the, the, the historical t- contextuality and genre of the texts and so on. 
And Plantinga also notes that given that the principal author of the Bible is God, the meaning of a biblical passage will be given by what it is that the Lord intends to teach in that passage. We are just given that what the Lord intends to teach is identical with what the human author had in mind. And I've mentioned some of the ways in which, particularly looking at prophetic passages, the typological prophetic passages in particular, um, work in that kind of a way. The, the, the context that God brings to it through history gives you a whole other layer of meaning that the original author probably didn't have in mind. The original human author, that is. Uh, William Dembski again agrees with Plantinga that the ultimate author is God. This is important because we run into trouble if we limit God's word stated in human language uh, to the intentions of the human writers or speakers. And he, he suggests looking at John 11:50 to 51. This is where the, um, one of the high priests talks about it, it is good that one man die for the nation. Um, and he meant, well, that will save us from the Romans kicking our butts again. So it's expedient, even if it's not kind of morally, like, really the best thing. But I suppose on the whole, this is the lesser of two evils. But it is then interpreted by the apostles who re- report this as sort of, of course, little did he know that that was exactly what was going on in Christ. That one man was dying for the, ne- for the nation in a whole other, more important theological kind of sense. Isn't it ironic that, that his words meant... No, you know, the high priest didn't mean that ironic meaning, but the Bible then interprets what he's saying and said, what he said means this. But he didn't mean that. See? Um, so the human speaker meant something different from what the divine author means by, by it kind of thing. Could, could that work in the case of the Psalms what you're talking about mm. or Isaiah when mm. the human speaker thinks he's talking about this one thing but really God is drawing it into Right, and I think you get that you get that from the, the context that God then puts it in over time by building up the rest of the scriptures. Um, and so you sometimes argue, and this is, there's two sorts of, of, of prophecy talked about. Those that are deliberate sort of long-term prophecies about, say, the Messiah, like he'll be born in this town or he'll be from this line of descent or whatever. Um, those are very sort of literal prophecies, if you like, that were known by the prophet to be, I am making a prophecy about the Messiah. But there's a whole other class of prophecy called um, uh, the brain freeze. I've used the word earlier. Um, typological prophecies, where um, you can kind of see a secondary meaning to it in the light of, of later events. Um, and I've mentioned things like I think probably Psalm 22 falls in, falls into that, for example. Um, that the original author may not have known that they were talking about what was going to happen to the Messiah. But given what we know now about what happened to the Messiah, we can immediately see that what else could that, you know, it means definitely talking about that. Otherwise, the coincidence is just so unlikely <laughs> um, as, to be, as to be weird. I go into this more. I've recently did some um, talks at a European Leadership Forum on uh, fulfilled biblical prophecy, which you can find on my podcast channel 
Um, so if you're interested in, in, in that, you know, there's some more uh, there you can find through my website. Let's look at uh, a little bit more detail of, of um, one genre and interpretation of passage of scripture. Uh, this is Rembrandt's painting of um, Peter's denial of Christ. Craig again. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have the reference where this is, but um, he, he notes that the Gospels, we're coming to think, should be understood as different performances of orally transmitted tradition. The, 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 the material was, was oral tradition, first of all, written down within that generation, but it started as oral traditions. And the central, in oral tradition, the central idea is conveyed, often in some key words and climaxing in, in a saying which is repeated verbatim. But the surrounding details in such traditions are fluid and incidental. He says, probably the closest example to this in our non-oral Western culture is the telling of a joke. It's important that you get the structure and the punchline right. Um, but the rest is incidental, and you could elaborate it more or less depending on your audience, etc., etc., when you compare many of the stories told about Jesus in the Gospels and you identify the words that they have in common, you find a pattern just like this. There's a variation in the secondary details, but very often the central saying is almost verbatim the same. This has enormous implications for one's doctrine of biblical inerrancy, for it means that the evangelists had no intention that their stories would be accurate in every detail. What we in a non-oral culture might regard as an error would not be taken by them as erroneous at all. They were used to this way of orally transmitting stories in a reliable fashion, um, but with the secondary detail of the story uh, up to the particular occasion, the different storyteller, how he wants to lay it out, etc. Um, some studies of oral tradition have found that the, the ratio here is um, about uh, 80% of common material and a 20% kind of variation in the secondary detail. And that's about the same percentage as you find in comparing same stories across say the synoptic gospels interestingly so let's look at Peter's first denial and I've put in red all the words that are in common across the four gospels and in orange uh, a little snatch of phrase that's in common between just two of them and the white words differ you see, so uh, Mark, which is often taken to be the earliest upon which Matthew and Luke drew. Um, Peter, in the courtyard, servant girls came. She looked closely at him. You also were with Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, went out. Matthew, Peter, in the courtyard, servant girl came. You also were with Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, went out. Luke, servant girl, looked closely at him, with, but he denied it, I don't know, 
John, not one of, not in the Synoptic tradition, puts it quite differently. But still, you, he, I. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so, so synoptic uh, means um, from the same viewpoint right. in Greek. Uh, the synoptic Gospels are Math- uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. It's often thought uh, generally that Mark was the earliest written and that uh, Matthew and Luke's Gospels copy material from Mark but also add their own independent traditions. And when they're copying material from Mark, sometimes they make little changes to it, like the oral tradition. Um, whereas John's Gospel does not quote from um, and the Synoptic Gospels and often doesn't, doesn't tell the same stories but tells different stories. Um, and is, uh, in literary terms, an independent witness to the events. Yeah. So you see this kind of unity but variation um, of, of the main point, but you know, the exact wording is not really important. Um, look at what this servant girl says, according to the four Gospels. She says in Peter's first denial, you also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, in Mark, Matthew. You also were with Jesus of Galilee. Nazarene, Galilee. Luke, this man was with him, i.e. Jesus. John, you you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? But it's clear that the same point is being made, isn't it? But did the servant girl literally say all four things? Well, obviously, she didn't speak Greek. She probably said it in Aramaic, and we have Greek translations of, anyway. But, I mean, it's possible that she said all four things, but I think it's very, very unlikely. Um, She clearly said something in Aramaic that accused Peter of being an associate of Jesus. And the important thing in the Gospel is that it is communicated to us that she said something that accused Peter of being an associate of Jesus. But if you were to say, hang on, Mark says she said you also were with that Nazarene Jesus, but Matthew says you also were with Jesus of Galilee, that is a contradiction. The Bible is not inerrant. You're, you're pushing your reading of the text literalistically beyond a proper literary understanding, literal reading of the text. The literalistic inerrant interpretation of some verses, whilst it's logically possible, is so implausible, I think, as to indicate that our understanding of inerrancy would be overly literal and not literary enough if we were to read it in that kind of a way. Peter's first denial... Again, did Peter make all four of these responses? I don't know or understand what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Woman, I don't know him. I am not. (laughs) Alabir in Aramaic. Again, possible but highly implausible. He likely said something in Aramaic that denied the accusation put to him. You might even say he probably employed the equivalent phrase of I don't know, because in all three of the synoptic gospels you have the phrase I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. 
That was probably at the core of what he said in Arabic. Um, so, I don't know, it just comes out there, even I in John. <laughs> Second denial of Peter. Um, this is interesting. Um, according to Mark, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again. Same servant girl, she said again. In Matthew, another servant girl. Well, the word could be translated a different servant girl saw him and said to the people there. Um, in Luke, um, someone else, heteros, a masculine other. You also one of them. Man, I am not, he said. John, uh, so they asked him. Now look, okay, let's you know, try and harmonise these accounts. Um, it is possible that John's they, who accused Peter, incorporates Mark's servant girl and Matthew's different servant girl. After all, Mark does say there were several servant girls who both speak to the group. Notice the girls don't speak to Peter, they speak to the group. And that Luke's man speaks to Peter on behalf of the group. I think that harmonises the different statements, makes them logically coherent. But is that the most plausible reading or interpretation of what's going on in the text? Again, in light of, of Craig's comments about the genre of gospel, perhaps not. Maybe Mark's servant girl and Matthew's different servant girl are simply incompatible differences in the secondary detail of how the two gospel writers have chosen to tell the story. And if you were to point this out to them and say, you've contradicted each other, they would say, no, we haven't. We've both given you the same important information. They would, like, not get what you're driving at. <laughs> because, hey, this is, I'm, I'm recording an oral history, and you, you well know that when you retell a story the next night around a different campfire... You put a bit of variation into it for the sake for the sake of interest, or it doesn't really matter. I mean, who, who cares whether it was the same servant girl or another? He, Jesus, you know, Peter was accused, and he did not look at the point of the story. So, yeah, your idea of inerrancy, perhaps you could qualify it. I think you have to qualify it in some way to take into account. Not only the limitations of ordinary language, but genre and context. 1 Kings 7.23 is not a modern maths textbook, which would have to round up anyway. Um, Psalm 93 is not teaching astrophysics. Uh, Matthew 13.31 is not a journal article on botany. Um, the Gospels don't present us with an unedited video of Peter's denials. But they do within the genre expectations of a first century biography, accurately report the important information that they're trying to convey. It's just, you know, how far should you push that into the, the, the minutiae of the differences and the way in which they've chosen to word Peter denied it? Exactly, kind of thing, I think, you know. 
overall, as I said before, there is no avoiding the process of, of, of good, sensible, wise interpretation or hermeneutics, reading out rather than reading in, a la postmodernists. That requires both knowledge and wisdom. In particular, there's no avoiding the need to understand every bit of scripture within the context of our understanding of the whole of scripture, and that inevitably means bringing in the context of our theology and our philosophy and our history and our science and all of that growing fallible understanding of stuff, because we're fallible, even though the text is not. Uh, You've got to take into account the progressive nature of Revelation, interpret the obscure in the light of the clear, etc., I'm, I'm trying not to hopefully come across as saying, here's what I think you should think. <laughs> and that might be a bit frustrating um, if, if one does want the answers, but I'm, I'm trying to say there, are, there is actually a range of options here that I think are, are perfectly decent Christian options to think through, and I'm probably indicating where my sympathies lie, but I'm also indicating, as with many of these things, you can't avoid the hard task of saying, actually, this is a bit difficult and messy and we haven't got it all nailed down necessarily. So, yeah, let's have a loo break and then uh, continue on. Right. Marvellous, as I was saying. Uh, A bit more practical and sort of discipleship, spiritual development focused here. I'm coming back full circle to what I was talking about at the beginning about some of those quotes about the authority uh, view of the Bible. Back to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. We looked at all scripture as God-breathed, but look at the rest of it. It's God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or a verse like Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is alive and active. Remember N.T. Wright talking about active word of God. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I think it was the um, philosopher uh, C.M. Jode who talked about one of the reasons that he became a Christian was because as he read the Bible, he discovered it was a book that read him. That's an interesting way of of putting it. So we've been looking a lot at the uh, issues of, uh, and definitions of inerrancy and infallibility under the broader heading of authority. And I want to broaden out again, because think about the question, are these statements true or false? And inerrancy is all about, is is the Bible true? Is what says true? So Exodus 20 verse 13 says, do not murder. Is that true? Psalm 42 verse 5, why am I so depressed? Why this turmoil within me? Is is that true? Um, Psalm 146 verse 1, hallelujah, my soul, praise the Lord. Is is that true? true to approach the Bible just with the question is it true in mind is to um, take a very kind of narrow 
approach to what the Bible is trying to do. May I ask you a quick question? Mm. Surely it's not saying whether those statements are true or not, but surely it's more a question of whether um, the person actually said them? Is that a thing? Or is that... Well, it's certainly. Or is that the same? I mean, is that just like the same point? Because to me, it's not like it's not. You're not saying do not murder, whether that's true. Or, well, in my mind, you're not mm. saying do not murder is that true or false. But rather, did that person say, and was that person mm. where they said they got that from? That command, yeah, I think those are two separate questions. So, supposing we 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 first ask the question, um, does the Bible accurately report that? Um, one of the Ten Commandments Moses came down off the hill with was the commandment, do not murder. Mm. We can say, yes, it, it's true that it accurately reports that, but it's still a separate question to then ask, well, is that command, do not murder, true? To which the, the answer is, well, that's the wrong question, because a command is not something that's true or false. It's a command. You might ask the question, is that appropriate? But is that or, actually what people who are arguing against biblical inerrancy sort of come up with that sort of argument? No. What I'm, what I'm pointing out here is that the, the biblical inerrancy debate focuses our attention on quite a narrow range of what the Bible is about, what it's doing. Um, so that that might distract us from important things that the Bible is doing and, and, and how we think of the authority of the Bible. Clearly, you know, do not murder is tied up with the authoritativeness of the Bible in our lives, but it's not tied up with the question of inerrancy in that, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But does the question of inerrancy not tie into why the reason we give the Bible authority? If you see what I mean. I would say that inerrancy is a subset of the question of biblical authority rather than the other way around. They're related, but I'm saying in the inerrancy debate in question it focuses on a subset of what really is the issue, biblical authority. Yeah. yeah. So um, language theorists uh, have suggested that there are at least five things that we can do with language. Uh, we can make truth claims or make statements like Jesus wept. Uh, we can issue commands like do not murder, pass me the salt. Um, we can give promises. We can say I do. Um, not only is it, it true that I do, but by saying that, I am making a promise. Um, we can make exclamations like hallelujah or wow or ow. <laughs> um, we can give what's called performative utterances. Um, these are things like, I named this ship the Oriana smash. <laughs> and then that means that that ship is named Oriana because she said that <laughs> in that context. Um, her, you know, she wasn't saying this ship is called Oriana. It wasn't called Oriana before she said that it was. Her saying it made it the case. You know, I now pronounce you, etc. 
So we do quite a lot of different things with language. And the inerrancy question that we focus on, there's a lot of debate about, is really about number one. When we don't want to forget that the, the Bible is probably doing two and three and four and maybe five as well. You know, um, think of Jesus, performative utterances. This is a new covenant in my blood. Um, he takes the old Passover or meal, whenever they celebrate it, and he reconfigures that and makes a new covenant. He makes it by saying it, and so on. So we can relate, you can think even in the 2 Timothy verse that we had relates to at least uh, numbers uh, 1 and 2 and 4 are going on in that verse. Another great rich quote from N.T. Wright. The Bible isn't there simply to be an accurate reference point for people who want to look things up and be sure that they've got them right. That's the encyclopedia stuff. It is there to equip God's people to carry forward his purpose of new covenant and new creation. It's there to enable people to work for justice, to sustain their spirituality, as they do say, to create and enhance relationships at every level, to produce that new creation, which will have about it something of the beauty of God himself. The Bible, in fact, is not simply an authoritative description, although it is that, but it's not simply an authoritative description of a saving plan, as though it was simply an an aerial photograph of a particular piece of landscape. It is part of the saving plan itself. It's more like the guide who takes you round the landscape and shows you how you can enjoy it to the full. Again, back to the, the active word of God being part of our discipleship and relationship with God. Spirituality is often a term banded around with a lack of uh, definitional precision, uh, which I've attempted in various bits of research I've done to, to bring some to it. Um, I think of a spirituality as something that, that aims to be a virtuous an integrative way of life, a way of relating to reality at various levels through our, our worldview, our kind of ideas and assumptions and beliefs about things, through our, our attitudes, our choices and commitments to things, and our subsequent actions and behaviours and practices. Um, I've got uh, some alliteration here to help remember it. So spirituality is the combination of your assumptions, attitudes, actions, or uh, if you prefer, your head, your heart, and your hands, uh, as many people use that phrase. And of course, this goes back to, for example, Jesus' answer to the question about the greatest commandment, about loving God with all of your heart, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And he's referring back there to passage in uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 as well Um, with everything that you are but this kind of structure comes out and or you think of it in terms of faith and works various ways of dividing this up but it becomes hopefully a a kind of self-reinforcing feedback loop in your life um, 
because you have certain ideas and assumptions and beliefs and you marry them with certain attitudes, that leads you to behaving in certain ways, but those ways of behaving often reinforce your beliefs and your attitudes and so on. So, because I believe X, Y, and Z about God and Jesus, and I respond attitudinally in a certain positive way rather than a negative way, like the demons who believe and tremble, I tend to do things like bothering to do Bible study and pray and go to church and so on. But because I do those things, that increases my belief and shapes my attitudes in a Godward direction and snowball effect. Um, this is the same, I think, for all spiritualities. Richard Dawkins' spirituality, the Buddhist spirituality, the Muslim spirituality, um, Christian spirituality. It's just that different spiritualities will fill out these this structure in different but overlapping ways, with different beliefs, attitudes, actions, and so on. And as you engage in that that process of that way of life that's that's hopefully bringing integration or wholeness or shalom in an Old Testament word, peace to the person, as you internalise that way of life, it brings a virtuous integration of of the person together. Um, And as I'll argue in the next uh, session when we're looking at at pre-modernism and modernism and post-modernism, I think modernist and postmodernist ways of, of having a spirituality as they work out in culture are actually disintegrative of the person. And that the more consistent you try to live with a rejection of God at the foundation of your worldview, the more disintegrative that way of life becomes. But that's to preempt what we might do next time. Uh, so we have this way of life that's a combination of your head and your heart and your hands that as you live it, pulls you together uh, as a person in God's image. And that is spirituality and spiritual development. Now, what Wright is pointing out is that the Bible is, is a God-given authoritative component in the divinely wrought process of spiritual development. It's, it, of course it is about what we sometimes narrowly describe as salvation. I'm getting it. Are you saved, brother? You know. But it's not just the, you know, have I ticked the yes, I'd like to be saved, please, box. <laughs> and I've got my insurance policy for when I die. It is entering into a whole particular way of life, following quite Christ. Uh, it's something that makes a difference to my spirituality and my head and my heart and my hands, my relationships with reality. So there are various components of this life of discipleship. Um, there is you, the reader of the Bible, your reasoning, your knowledge, your wisdom, etc. There is the community, your, your church, the Christian tradition and so on. There is the Holy Spirit's work. Not only in inspiring the Bible, but in in working in your life and heart as well. Um, being yoked, you know, Jesus saying, "Take my yoke upon you." And this image of being yoked is where you, the farmers would take um, a new animal that didn't know its job and yoke it to an experienced animal, like an experienced 
that, that knows how to do the ploughing, so that, that the inexperienced animal can learn how to do the job properly. Um, be, be yoked, take my yoke upon you, as Christ yokes us to himself and all the Holy Spirit, so that we learn to live as he wants us to. Um, and part of that, of course, happens through the Bible. So with this sort of whole spirituality, head, hearts, hand thing, you notice that popping up all through Scripture, and you soon notice that, that this whole sort of triadic structure just seems to be built into the way that we're built and the reality is built. And you gradually notice that not only do you have spirituality as the combination of your head and hearts and your hands, but that in communication theory, and this in, both in terms of sort of reading the Bible and communicating Christianity and so on, Traditionally speaking, classical rhetoric talked about the three areas of, of reason, argument, logos, of pathos, getting the audience to feel the right way about things in the heart, uh, and ethos, the kind of character of the speaker as an influence upon, you know, did they come across as a used car salesman that you wouldn't trust as far as you can throw them, or as someone who's authoritative, as it were. So you get spirituality communicated through not only propositional logical statements, but yes, but also through engaging with the heart, through imagery, through poetry, um, through uh, ethos, through seeing the character of Christ displayed in the stories, through listening to a parable, etc. That all of this is going on at the same time. That the, the head and the heart and the hands communicated through the logos and the pathos and the ethos, you, you judge these things by the traditional philosophical standards, the so-called transcendental standards, standards by which you can judge things across different disciplines in the university, the standards of truth and goodness and beauty. You want what you believe and follow in your head to be true. <laughs> you want your heart to be shaped in a way that you become a beautiful character. You want to ask the question of Christianity not just, not just is that true, propositionally speaking, but is that a good way of life? Is that a beautiful way of living? What actions with my hands is this calling me to, this way of life, this text? Are those actions good or bad? And all of this will link up to, will, will grow out of and grow towards, in the process of spirituality, the traditional virtues as well. So if we have the head communicating at the level of logos, judged by the value of truth, this grows out of and from the traditional virtues like contemplation, faith, wisdom, the heart communicating to the level of pathos judged against beauty growing from and, and to traditional virtues like praise, hope, faith, there's an overlap, wonder. The hands, your practices and actions communicated through ethos, character, judged against the standard of goodness, the character of God ultimately, growing from and, and to traditional values like Service, love, worship. Um, so that all of these 
tie together in a holistic kind of a way. And the Bible is interested in that whole person, whole way of life, whole community, uh, whole communication, values, virtues, way of life kind of thing, as it were. Um, yes, it is interested in the a- accurate propositional communication of truth, um, but it is also interested in the, we were talking about the appropriate, you know, what is the appropriate emotional response to this or that situation, according to the inherent nature of the object uh, that I am appreciating or not appreciating? Um, is this really beautiful? Is this really good? You know, is it truly beautiful, truly good? They all relate to each other. So Timothy Keller, um, in his wonderful book about preaching, um, says this, I love this. It says, preaching is not only explaining the text. You might do that in a lecture. It's not only explaining the text, but also using it to engage the heart. People change, not merely not by merely changing their thinking, but by changing what they love most. Such a shift requires nothing less than changing your thinking, but it entails much more than just changing your thinking. So the goal of the sermon cannot be merely to make the truth clear and understandable to the mind, but must also be to make it gripping and real to the heart. Change happens not just by giving the mind new arguments, but also by feeding the imagination new beauties to fall in love with. It's a both and. It's a both and. Or similarly, um, Nicholas Walterstorff, American Christian philosopher, says there is in the Bible a vision of what it is that God wants for God's human creatures. A vision of what constitutes human flourishing, true spirituality, and of our appointed destiny. It is the vision of shalom, peace, wholeness. A vision first articulated in the poetic and prophetic literature of the Old Testament, but prominent in the New Testament as well, under the rubric of this Greek term comes in here, Irene, peace, ironic. Shalom incorporates right relationships in general. Spirituality is about relationship. Right relationships to God, to one's fellow human beings, to nature, to oneself. Love the Lord your God with heart, mind, everything. And then love your neighbour as self. And then we can also now love the creation as well, back to the creation ordinances. The Shalom community is not merely a community, but it is the responsible community in which God's laws for our multifaceted existence are obeyed. Um, The community is meant to be doing something. Uh, To dwell in Shalom is to find delight in living rightly before God, to find delight at the heart in living rightly in one's physical surroundings, to find delight in living rightly with one's fellow human beings, to find delight even in living rightly with oneself.
but yes, as David Clark says, the, the informational, the propositional, the inerrancy, the truth level, and the transformational functions of scripture reinforce one another. You can't have one without Tova, I would say. So I, to, to end on this quote, I like this way of, of sort of surmising an approach to understanding scripture that comes from the Lausanne Covenant, um, which has had various uh, meetings, it's big meetings of the worldwide evangelical church, the Lausanne movement. Um, and this is from the Lausanne Covenant. And they say, uh, in which um, people, folks like John Stott and so on were involved, so we affirm the divine inspiration, truthfulness, and authority of both Old and New Testament scriptures in their entirety as the only written and only infallible rule of faith and practice. We also affirm the power of God's word to accomplish his purpose of salvation. And understanding salvation there, I think not just in the tick box, but entering into a way of life discipled by Christ in relationship, forgiving relationship with God, kind of salvation, the whole caboodle, kind of a way. So I like this because it it brings in together a lot of the different sort of facets of what we've been talking about. It says, yeah, all of that is important because all that is sort of interrelated and and helps one another uh, to function properly.